morning. Instead of reading the passage um, this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to walk through the passage. All of the passage will be read, but it will be read as we're walking through it. I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 24 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. We are nearing the end. We're in the final section. Paul has made his way to Jerusalem, and now he's under arrest. And as we said a couple weeks ago, from the moment of his arrest uh, until the end of Acts, he will remain under arrest. He is in the guard of the Romans at this point. Um, This morning, we're going to continue to look at the various trials and suffering of Paul. And once again, we're going to see how he responded to it and what we can draw from this. Paul is a pillar. He is a shining example of how a person who has been changed by Jesus responds to suffering, hardship, unexpected change. He's an example to us, so we're going to see. And, and one of the reasons that, that I want to continue taking this approach is first of all, as I've been reading through this part of Acts, I'm just floored by Paul's demeanor through this entire part. It, it almost reads as if it's not true. The way that Paul responds to these, these intense situations. I mean, today, he is on trial before the Roman governor of the region, Felix. And Felix was not someone you wanted to mess with. Felix was a crook. Felix had everything he had from from, uh, dishonest means. Felix was responsible for all kinds of chaos in the region. Felix was not a good dude. And you have the the Jewish high priest who's bringing charges against Paul. You have a lawyer who, who is able to actually say, oh, the great Felix in his address. He's like, Felix, you are so great. Your reign has been nothing but peace, and we are so grateful for you. I mean, just straight up lying to him, as, as I guess lawyers do. Is that a thing? Yeah. Um, well, he does. He plays some lawyer tricks, and Paul is a helpless victim in all of this. He is chained. He's under arrest. He is at the mercy of these powerful people. And yet he is just cool as a cucumber. He is just calm. He is, he is at peace. He is content. He is still able to reason the way that he's always reasoned. He is still able to share the gospel the way he's always shared the gospel. It almost, it seems like Paul is a made-up figure who is, you know, placed in these situations. Who responds like this? I mean, Paul, it's like, my my man, do you not realize you are no longer in these Gentile regions where you're just sharing the gospel freely with people who are hungry to to learn about faith in Jesus? You're not not there anymore. You're, you're You're not in a comfortable place right now. Why are you still talking like this? He barely even comes to his own defense. And then as we're going to see, there are two scenes here in this passage. Scene number one is his trial. Scene number two is he's in, in custody, and Felix brings him in to talk with him. And he's having a private conversation with a man who can literally end his life. And he doesn't beg. He doesn't bribe. And begging and bribing were expected. That's actually why Felix brought him in. How much money can I get out of this guy? I have all the leverage. How much more leverage can I get over this guy? And Paul, even in that moment, shares the gospel. Shares the gospel in a way that scares Felix to death. I'm just, I'm struck by his character. I'm struck by his choices. 
And the reason I'm struck by them is his character and his choices do not seem to be determined by his circumstances. They are determined by something else entirely. And so I want us once again to, to look at this passage, look at the entire chapter of Acts 24. As I said, there are two scenes. There's a trial, and then there's Paul in custody. In the trial, there are two parts to that. There is the accusations that are brought against Paul, and then you have Paul's defense. But, but as we're continuing to look at Paul here, I was actually reading this week, and one commentator, he took special note of Paul's disposition throughout this section of Acts. And, and he talked about, he said, even though Paul was in the position of a victim, his conduct, his words, his actions makes it seem as if he were the master. And I want us to dig into this a little bit. Paul, who's completely helpless here. Paul, who has lost his freedom. Paul, whose life is hanging in the balance. Paul, who is at the mercy of others far more powerful than him comes across as totally in control. Comes across as poised. He's at peace. He's content. And he's confident in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. I don't know about you. That's not typically how I initially react to chaos and uncertainty in my life. When chaos comes... When suffering comes, do you know what option number one usually is for me? Panic. You panic, right? Maybe not on the outside. Some of us are, are better than others at, at hiding that, that we're panicking. Others just wear, it, wear our panic right on our sleeves, and you can see it. But that's what we tend to do. When our life gets turned upside down, when something unexpected happens, especially when it's a hardship, especially when it's a trial, especially when it's suffering, we panic. Paul doesn't. What's, I want us to press into this and see the key to Paul's response to hardship and see if we can draw something from it. And we're asking the question, how does he do this? How is he confident and content? How is he at peace and how is he poised? How does he do it? What does he have that empowers him to stand so firm and rest so easy when his life is falling apart? I, I see two things here, um, and it's two things that Paul had. It's two things that we need in order to face hardship and suffering with confidence, contentment, poise, peace. Two things, transcendent purpose and a clear conscience. Two things. In order to have this type of Pauline peace in the midst of suffering, you need a transcendent purpose for your life, and then you also need a clear conscience before God. Let's look at each of these. First, we need a transcendent purpose. All right, so look with me in Acts 24, the first nine verses. Here's what we read in the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, so here's the accusations. This is how it starts. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation, 
in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. You see, Paul is in Roman custody, and, and the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem, they have decided to bring charges against Paul before the Roman governor, Felix. Now, just a little information about Felix. Felix is an, he, he's a very interesting figure in, in Roman history in the sense that Felix was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a governor of a Roman province. And it wasn't, it wasn't because he just kind of, you know, uh, pulled himself up by his bootstraps and, and made it to the top, the American dream. No, he was, he was set free by um, Antonia. He, he, had, he had very, very important connections. And that's how you made your way up in the Roman Empire, is knowing the right people. And so uh, uh, Antonia was the mother of Claudius, who would one day be Caesar. And so, you know, as a friend of the family, when Claudius became Caesar, he set Felix up with a governorship in this region of Palestine. And now during Felix's governorship, insurrections, anarchy dramatically increased throughout the whole region. And it was mainly due to how brutal Felix was. The, the historian Josephus, he, he tells us that Felix repeatedly crucified the leaders of any uprising that, that would come up in the land. So F Felix was not someone to mess with. Now this scene opens with the trial underway. And this high priest is represented by a lawyer named Tertullus. And, and he begins to address Felix with this nauseating and factually inaccurate flattery. Now, it was, it was common, common practice for, you know, a trial to begin this way where you, you know, you, you don't necessarily flatter the judge, but you, you, you show respect to the judge. And Paul is going to show respect to the judge, or in this case, Felix the governor. He's going to show respect. But, but this high priest, he is just, it's, it's insane. It's like, oh, we have so much peace. We have so much peace. Our people are so well off, and it's all because of you, most excellent Felix. He's going to say whatever he needs to say to get Felix on his side. That's what uh, Tertullus needs. Well, then he, he proceeds, and he brings three charges against Paul in this order. He says, first, Paul has stirred up riots among the Jews. So he's, he's stirred up riots. Number two, second accusation, Paul is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that was the way that they described the Christian movement because Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus was the Nazarene, and this is the sect um, or the group of the Nazarenes, and he is the ringleader. And then the third accusation, Paul is accused of profaning or desecrating the temple. Now, these are serious charges. The first charge in particular gets really close to a charge of sedition, which would have been punishable by death. And Felix, he turns to Paul, we see in verse 10, he gives him an opportunity to defend himself. And here's what we read. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's a little bit different than, <laughs> than what uh, Tertullus said. He's like, um, you have been an amazing judge over this region. And then Paul's like, you have been a judge over this region. And uh, because you are an authority figure, I will respect you. Um, and I will go no further. Um, then he says in verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always make, or take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And so ends Paul's defense. Paul's response is really simple, but it's really important and really striking. He denies two charges. He fully accepts one. Well, he denies stirring up the riots. He, he, he's, he says on a couple of things. First of all, br bring anyone in that could say that I stirred up a riot. Find someone. What did I do? I didn't stir up a riot. Who, who could say that I did? Where's the evidence? I didn't stir up a riot. And by the way, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. Not many successful insurrections happen in 12 days. I haven't had that much time to plan. You know, maybe I'll start a riot later, but just give me some time. I haven't done it yet. You know, so he's like, it's impossible for me to have stirred up a riot. So he denies this, this accusation. Well, he denies the third accusation as well. He denies profaning the temple. And he says, listen, my very presence in Jerusalem is due to religious reasons. He says, I've come to Jerusalem to bring alms, to bring a collection to the Jewish Christians to help relieve their need to care for their poor. And he says, plus, even before I went into the temple, I purified myself. You remember the, the vow that he took? He, he said, I purified myself before I even went into the temple, and I didn't, I didn't argue with anyone. I didn't stir anything up. I didn't, you know, there wasn't even anybody there engaging with me. So, so he, he completely denies this. But there is one accusation that Paul fully accepts. He agrees with them that he is connected to the group that they call the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul essentially looks at Felix and he says, listen, this isn't true, that's not true. No evidence, no evidence. Now, this, this, this second one, the middle one, you got me on that one. You got me. Yep, guilty as charged. I am of the sect of the Nazarenes. I belong to the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. I belong to him. I am a part of this group. And when this, when this accusation comes, what they're really saying here, they're not just trying to identify Paul's religious affiliation. They're trying to say, 
we are all experiencing trouble throughout the whole region because of this new movement of people, because of the ones who are following after the Nazarene who was crucified, and Paul is the ringleader. If it wasn't for this group, we would not have all of these problems. And Paul fully embraces this, accu- this accusation. And he does it through four confessions. His poise in this moment is unbelievable. The way that he is able to share the gospel with people who want him dead. Once again, he's able to do it. He says, sure, I am a leader in the Jesus movement, in the sect of the Nazarenes, if you want to call us that. And here's what that means. I worship the God of our fathers according to the way. Now, according to the way is very important for all of this because he says, according to the way, assuming that we mean that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to fulfill all of God's uh, promises, that he has come to fulfill the law, that he has come to fulfill the prophecies that are written down for us in the Holy Scriptures. Yes, assuming that we all agree that Jesus is God in the flesh, according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers. This isn't some new God that I've created this is the fulfillment of what the God, you, of the God you've been worshiping has brought to pass. And he says, I believe everything written down in the law and the prophets. He says, I have a hope in God just like some of my accusers have. A hope that is rooted in resurrection. Do you see how tactful Paul is? He doesn't, he doesn't jump out here and say, listen, you have a hope in a future resurrection. And that's cool, but it's wrong because it's not rooted in Jesus. My hope is in a resurrection that's rooted in Jesus. No, he finds common ground with them, and he says, you have a hope of future resurrection, so do I. But it's fulfilled through Jesus. And then he finally says, I strive to have a clear conscience before God and others. And then Paul, he concludes his defense with this unmistakable clarity, and he points back to what he had said earlier, and he says, I'm on trial for one reason and one reason only, because I preach the resurrection of the dead. Um, One thing that jumps off the page to me is the contrast between the high priest lawyer, Tertullus, and Paul. The nature of the accusations and the nature of the defense are very different from one another. As, As we saw, Tertullus is doing everything he can to curry favor with Felix, to get him on his side regardless of what's true. Paul defends himself truthfully and skillfully. Paul sees this trial as yet another opportunity to witness to Jesus. So he shares the gospel with them by describing Christianity in a way that they would listen to, in a way that they would understand. Now, this beautiful and skillful gospel presentation is also strange because of the setting. Who shares the gospel in court? Why, of all the things, he took the most time on the accusation that he agreed with. The denials are really quick. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. Hey, I don't want you to miss this. This is true. I am a part of this movement, and I want you to know what that means. Why spend so much time doing that? Is he playing games? Does he understand Paul, you're trying to survive another day, my man. But he's, he's, not, he's not concerned about that. 
I mean, who shares the gospel with a judge who holds your very life in his judgment? Maybe get to that later, you know? Let's, let's make sure we're not executed by, by, the, by sundown. But he's unfazed. He's poised. He's confident. How? How is he so poised in a moment of deep suffering? Well, Paul, as we said earlier, he had a purpose in life that transcended every single circumstance he could ever face. And that's what we need, too. In order for us to remain poised and at peace, when life changes unexpectedly or we enter a season of suffering, we need a purpose that transcends every circumstance. When I talk about purpose, what do I mean? A life purpose is something that motivates you to keep living. It is your reason for waking up in the morning. It, it is the thing that you are living for. It is your great why in life. And we need purpose. Humans need purpose because without purpose, we feel like life is completely meaningless. We were created to have purpose. There's a reason that you're here. There's a reason that you woke up this morning. And that reason, whatever it is for you, that is your purpose. And we have all kinds of things that we're living for. But we often take wonderful responsibilities, privileges, and roles that we have in life, and we turn them into ultimate life purposes. We live for things that we were not created to live for. And there are basically two kinds of purposes. There are circumstantial purposes, and there are transcendent purposes. So circumstantial purpose. Purpose, which gives meaning to your life, um, when it depends on your circumstances... When your reason for life, when your, your purpose, the meaning of your life depends on circumstances, your reason for living is very vulnerable. And a lot of the things that we live for fall into this category. Most of the time, our purpose is tied to circumstantial things like relationships or jobs. Think about a professional athlete. A professional athlete, he wakes up in the morning because he is going to perfect his craft. He is an athlete. Now, he has other things that he's living for, but he is primarily striving to be the best that he can at his sport. And what you see very often, very frequently, is when those athletes, especially the ones who have had a lot of success in their careers, when they retire, they really, really struggle to adjust because their reason for living is no longer a part of their life. It's circumstantial. Um, it, it's like that. I, I think of myself as a pastor. I have to be careful. I want to be the best pastor that I can be. But if I view my, ulti if my ultimate purpose in life, the reason that I'm on this earth is to be a pastor, I will lose myself if I'm ever not a pastor. It's circumstantial. And as much as we don't even like to think about it, relationships are like that. With, with your spouses, with your children. Tragedy can befall us. Suffering can come. We can lose the relationships that we currently have. And if your primary, your ultimate purpose in life is to be a, a spouse or to be a parent, what happens if that is taken away? You lose yourself. You don't know who you are anymore. Circumstantial purposes are necessary and, and wonderful, but when they become ultimate 
you will not be able to be at peace if suffering enters your life. Paul had tons of circumstantial purposes. I mean, he was a skilled tent maker. He was a gifted church planter. I mean, he wanted to plant churches in all kinds of Gentile regions. He, remember when he wrote to the Romans and he said that it is his ambition to preach Jesus where he is yet to be named. That's what he wants to do. Can he do that right here? If Paul's ultimate purpose in life, the reason that he is alive is to plant churches across the world or be a tent maker, he has lost himself because he is in Roman custody and it's been taken away. And yet, even though that's been taken away, Paul is at peace. You see, if Paul was primarily living for the things that had been taken away from him, if that was his ultimate purpose, his response would have been like ours when we are on the verge of losing something that we live for. Bitterness, rage, anger. That's what we're prone to do. But Paul doesn't because he has a transcendent purpose. We have to be careful tying our identity to circumstantial purposes because suffering will come and life will change. And if our ultimate purpose in life depends on particular circumstances, we will lose both our sense of self and a sense of peace when suffering comes. Suffering will drag us to the depths of despair if our circumstantial purposes become ultimate in our life. And that's why we need what Paul has here. We need a transcendent purpose for life. A purpose for life that does not change no matter what changes in our life. Our reason for live, a reason for living that will remain the same no matter what you face. No matter how much changes. You're, you're, you're in a car accident and you're never able to work again. You're never able to walk again and you still wake up the next day and you have the same purpose you had last week. That is what will motivate us to continue on in a world of suffering and sorrow, a transcendent purpose. You see, Paul's ultimate purpose in life was to glorify God by witnessing to him through his words and actions. That's a decent summary of what Paul lived for. He lived to bring glory to God by witnessing about Jesus wherever he was and in whatever circumstance. It did not matter. He could be planting a church. He could be talking to Gentiles. He could be talking to Jews. He could be with, with Felix in, in a private setting. He could be on trial. It does not matter. Paul lived to glorify God by showing Jesus through his words and through his actions. It's what he lived for. It was his reason for waking up in the morning. Living to glorify God through words and actions can be done anywhere, anytime, and before anyone. It can be done if we lose our freedom, if we lose our relationships, if we lose our jobs. It can be done in the face of death itself. And I know you know people in your life who have done that. You have seen people who are completely vulnerable, completely weak, maybe on their deathbed. And even in those moments, they are glorifying God in the things that they are saying and doing. It is a purpose that transcends all of our Circumstances. So since his purpose was untouchable, so was his peace. And so was his poise. He could still testify to God's goodness and glory even in chains. And so can we. Suffering does not eliminate our ability to glorify God. It merely changes how we glorify God. 
You and I were made for this. We were made to glorify God by witnessing to others about his goodness and grace. This is our ultimate purpose in life. And when you live for God's glory, you can have remarkable poise and remarkable confidence and remarkable peace even when hardship comes, even when suffering comes, even when your life is turned upside down. And here's the beautiful thing about it. When your purposes are properly ordered and prioritized, when you're, when you're ultimately living for God's glory above everything else, and it's, you have a transcendent purpose, then all of the circumstantial purposes fall into place, and you can actually fulfill them with gratitude and joy. You see, when, when a, a penultimate or, or a circumstantial purpose becomes ultimate for you, you start to idolize it. You want to be a particular type of parent. You want to be a particular type of spouse. You want to be a particular type of worker. And you want to have a particular type of success in this world. And when that doesn't work out for you, either despair overcomes you or you run over others to make sure you get it because that is the ultimate reason that you live. But when parenthood or marriage or friendship or careers or success or school when those things are not ultimate but glorifying God is and those things are not ultimate and they're serving this great grand purpose of glorifying God they can be enjoyed so much more fully you can wake up in the morning and not say my ultimate purpose is to be an amazing dad today you wake up in the morning and you say my ultimate purpose is to glorify God today I'm so grateful I get to do that by being a dad look what the Lord has given me I get to go, I get to go, I get to work, I get to provide for my family today. I get to do that. What a gift. That can only happen when our ultimate purpose is a transcendent one, to glorify God. That's what Paul had and that's what we need. Uh, one more thing we see here. Um, Paul had a clear conscience. How, how is Paul able to, to have so much peace, have so much poise in these moments? How he's able to just testify about who Jesus is even whenever you would be so tempted to try to reason with these people what are you what are you talking about I'm not harming anyone I'm not, and he doesn't really defend himself in an aggressive way instead he points to Jesus how is he able to do that well he has a clear conscience um, he says it in verse 16 in verse 16 he says I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And we see his clear conscience on display in verses 22 through 26. Let's, let's look at that together. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. And he heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Some of your translations may say afraid. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded. And in order to do the Jews a favor, we read here that Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul's trial kind of ends with an anticlimactic whimper. And you have all, this, all these accusations, Paul's defense, and then Felix just stands up and he's like, eh, well, well, well let's just wait. We can't really make a decision now. Just keep him in custody. We'll, we'll decide this later. Um, and, you know, Paul remains under arrest, and his future is still uncertain. And we learn here he ends up staying under arrest after this trial for two full years before another governor takes Felix's place. And he's not even released at that point when Felix leaves. You see, Felix was, was kind of familiar with Christianity, and he was likely curious to learn more, but Felix was also a crook. He wanted to bring Paul into his presence to try to pressure him to pay money in exchange for favor, and in exchange for release, even. He wanted a bribe. And so Felix summons Paul. And Luke tells us that Paul spoke with him about a few things. Faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God, self-control, and the coming judgment. And then we learn that Felix was terrified to hear this news. He was so alarmed that he actually sent Paul away. And he says, just get this, get this man out of my presence. I'll call him back later. We're just observing now. This is a strange scene. This is a strange scene. You need, you need to really think about the characters involved and what's happening. Felix has all the authority in all the region. And he definitely has all the authority in this place. He's the one that has total control. He's the one that has all the power. And he summons Paul to pressure him. And most people would cave to that pressure. And they would ask for a bribe, or they would give a bribe, they would ask for favor, they, they, would, they would ask for more leniency, they might even, you know, beg for release. And Paul does none of that. Felix kind of hoped he would be able to gain leverage over Paul in having a conversation about Christianity. Paul doesn't ask for a bribe, or Paul, uh, Paul doesn't ask for, for uh, more favor. He doesn't, he doesn't try to bribe Felix. Paul is at peace. And then by the end of the conversation, Felix is the one who's afraid. Why? Paul's at Felix's mercy. He has no panic. Paul had a clear conscience. Felix is afraid of the news that Paul shared, the news of God's demands for righteousness the necessity of faith in Jesus and the divine judgment that's coming for us all. Felix was terrified to hear that because he knows the type of life he has lived and to hear about coming judgment from an all-powerful God is not too comforting. And yet this same news puts Paul at ease. He is comforted by it. He's at peace. You see, not only is Paul not afraid of Felix, Paul is not afraid of future judgment from God. And that's only possible because Paul has a clear conscience before God. Felix does not. 
See, Paul is not living for God's glory out of guilt over past sins, as if he's trying to make up for it now. Paul has no guilt whatsoever pressing into his conscience. That's what it means for your conscience to be clear. There's no guilt pressing into his conscience. It's clear. He can stand clear-eyed before the Lord and receive from him whatever he would give because he knows that he will not face punishment and judgment because his conscience is clear. Felix doesn't have that assurance, so he's terrified. How? What's the difference? Well, maybe Felix is just a special kind of sinner and, you know, Paul has a special touch from God and so, or maybe Paul has, has figured out how to stop sinning in his life. He did say he was striving. How? Well, Paul, Paul's conscience is not clear because now his good deeds have finally outweighed his bad deeds. Paul is still a sinner, just like Felix. Paul's conscience is clear because of the resurrection of Jesus that he continues to preach. His conscience is clear because his guilt was borne by someone else. Paul is free from guilt and free from the fear of death and free from the fear of future judgment because Jesus stood in his place. Paul lives for God's glory. He shares the gospel under any circumstance. He is poised and he is at peace because, not in order that, because he has been made right with God. Paul is poised on trial. He's at peace in the governor's presence because he has already faced a different, more serious trial. He came on trial the way that you and I came on trial before the judge of heaven and earth. And at that trial, the evidence was stacked against him. He was unable to say, yeah, I'm guilty of this one, but this one, nope, and this one, nope. All of the accusations are true. The evidence is stacked against him. He is a sinner. He is guilty for all to see before the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he receives a not guilty verdict. And this is what happens. This is Christianity. You stand before the judge of heaven and earth, a guilty sinner, and receive a not guilty verdict, and you are set free and you are forgiven. How? Because Jesus stood in your place. He took your guilt upon himself. And he suffered the penalty of your sin, suffering the curse of God by being hanged on a tree. He died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. Through his death on the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin, his innocence for our guilt. Listen, this is how Paul is able to just chill out in Felix's presence. He's good. He's good. Felix, if he wants to get angry one day and put Paul to death, he, he's fine with it. He's fine with it because he does not have to fear, not Felix, not death, not judgment, because Jesus has stood in his place. 
What peace Paul has. What peace we can have. A clear conscience before God. Not because we are earning it or we're working toward it or we're striving really hard, but because it has been wiped clean because Jesus took our guilt upon himself. If you are in Christ today, your conscience should be clear before God. Jesus has made it so. He guarantees you a clear conscience before God. So if you don't even have to panic, and th- think about this. This is easy to say, hard to apply. Easy to say, hard to apply. But if you don't even have to panic at the thought of facing future judgment from God, what reason do you have to panic or tremble at anything this world has to throw at you? Do we understand this? We don't fear God because of what he has done for us. We don't fear judgment from him because Jesus has faced it. We can be at peace. Don't feel guilty for being at peace when your life falls apart. You are at peace because God has made peace between you and himself. No matter how hard life gets, you can be at peace. You can be at peace today in the face of loss or pain or sorrow or change. I want to encourage you to rest in the sufficient work of Jesus in your place. Worry not about suffering that may come because you have been set free and you have been forgiven. So your future is secure and your future is glorious.